0: Well, it's good to be here this morning. Um, I've had the benefit of your guest house next door probably on three occasions now, and I just wanted to thank you for the use of that. Uh, Pastor Greg and his family are in the front. Uh, A few times I've been to the back, this is the first time my wife has been with us to the back, so it's good. Appreciate getting away to Banff to rest and so on. Jordan, did you know the text when you picked the songs? Okay, okay. Uh, songs really teed things up. Um, I'm going to pray one more time, and then we're going to dig into God's Word together this morning. Father, we come and uh grateful for uh, those songs that uh, teed our hearts up to the text before us this morning. So Lord, we are uh, grateful that we have this opportunity to look at your word together. We pray that you would be honored and glorified. If I say something that is off base, that you would help us quickly forget it. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would be at work with your word today. Uh, This is not a strictly a human exercise, but an exercise of you as you work with the word in our hearts this morning. So we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And if you're not uh, into audience participation, I ask that you would be this morning because there will be times where I'm going to ask you to contribute. So um, please do at the appropriate time. So whenever anyone is looking for a home, what are the three most important factors? Mm. That's that's the answer I was looking for. Uh, some will want to be uh, near a highway if they do a lot of commuting. They want to get on the road quickly. Um, if you uh, bike or enjoy walking or have dogs in Medicine Hat, you want to be near the coolies. They're about five minutes from our house. We love to walk. My wife loves to ride. I love to walk. And it's beautiful to be out there. We walk together. She usually bikes by herself. Um, Want to be near, near work if you can be. For 12 years, Benita commuted for 45 minutes. For five years, she commuted an hour five. And now living in, ha- in Medicine Hat, eight minutes to work when the traffic's bad. That's good. That's really good. Location- location, location. Most important factor in buying a home. And that real estate phrase can also be thought about as we study our Bibles. People who are godly and have good intentions can get the meaning of the verse wrong if they don't know the location. Um, I have a pastor brother who's doing a sermon series this summer called Butchered. And it's a sermon series on verses that we often get wrong because we ignore the context. We take them out of the context and forget the location in which they are. So grab your Bible, if you haven't already, grab your Bible. Turn with me to Philippians 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 13 this morning. And the verse that can sometimes get under- misunderstood from that passage is Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And this verse does not mean that as believers that we sit back passively, we put our feet up on the coffee table and eat donuts all day long, and we can just have God do his business with us. There is human responsibility. Philippians 2:12 and 13 says therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is god who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure simply put god empowers us to strive in our relationship with christ This verse does not mean that God empowers us to sin. All things cannot include what God hates. That's what happens when we can snap verses, cut verses out of their context. You may have seen football players, Philippians 4.13, written under their eyes, likely thinking, I can win this game with God's help. That I can accomplish supernatural feats. We've never beat this team before, but if I quote this verse, it's going to be like a a rabbit's foot in my pocket. As a new believer, I didn't know anything about location, and I knew this verse. And Benita's dad had a boat, and he would take us out in the water and have a, a sea biscuit that he would pull behind it. And he would let us have fun for a while, but then he would always try and throw us off, and he Always managed to. And I remember one time being out there holding on for dear life, quoting this verse. Do you think he threw me off? Absolutely. He loved to do that. You may remember the movie The Princess Bride, and there was a word that a guy kept using throughout the movie. Do you remember what that word was? And one of the other characters came to him and said, that word you keep using, I don't think it means what you think it means. And sometimes we can do that with verses in the Bible. They don't mean what we think they mean. There are verses in the Bible and theologians and Bible teachers have warned us through the years, location, location, location what the verse means has so much to do with where it's found so all that introduction let me read philippians 4 verses 10 through 13 i rejoiced in the lord greatly but now at length you have revived your concern for me you were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity One of the things that should constantly blow us away about the book of Philippians, our church studied it for about four, four and a half months, is that Paul is in less than ideal circumstance. He writes, but he's locked up in Rome. He's likely chained up to a guard. He's waiting for his trial before Caesar. His life is on the line. He's under house arrest but his soul is free he is in christ and you can tell it by the tone of the letter there's a smear campaign against him by other pastors who were right on the gospel but wrong in their motive and even he had to dig into his own pocket to pay his way for his time in prison Acts 28.30 says he lived there two whole years at his own expense. Wow. He's in the worst of scenarios, but he's welcoming all who come to visit him. He's writing with joy. And that joy thing is the thread that weaves itself throughout the letter. He's glad the gospel's going forward, even though the preacher's motives are, are off. He desires to depart and be with Christ if he had the choice, but he would stay. He knows there is work to be done. He was a man who was living above his circumstances. So let's break it down. Three points. We're going to look at verse 10. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. If you're a note taker, the first point is this, rejoicing in the Lord because of people's concerns. Rejoicing in the Lord because of people's concerns. So Paul is rejoicing again as he has been throughout the letter. He's writing like he's in a palace, but really he's in prison He's locked onto Christ. And when we're pursuing Christ in our relationship with him, as we're growing and maturing and developing, it's amazing how the things of this life have less an impact. How the things of this world pale in comparison. We know the old song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Paul's temporary needs became dimmer as he saw Christ in his glory and grace. But Paul still had temporary needs. It wasn't the pay your way to get out of prison like Monopoly but it's pay your way in prison. And just a little history, when Paul arrived in Philippi, but 10 years before he wrote the letter, in Acts 16, you will see he preached the gospel, some responded, he planted a church there, then he moved to Athens and then to Corinth, and when he was in Corinth, it mentions the Philippians' support for him. They were jazzed to give because of God's grace in their lives. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8, a pretty incredible passage. And a long time had passed, but Epaphroditus, he was a guy who was part of the church at Philippi. He had come to pay the apostle a visit, minister to him, chapter 2, verse 25. And part of that ministering was through a financial gift that he mentions later on in verse 18 in this chapter, Paul believed that his chains fell under the sovereign hand of a good, good father. And that he could rest easy. And he rejoiced. He was rejoicing greatly in the Lord because Paul saw God's hand at work in the hearts of the Philippians in their gift. Paul says, You have revived your concern for me. Do we have any green thumbs? Any people that like to go, okay, okay, one or two, okay. Couple are like this. Okay. In our home, it's not me. Revived is a word taken from the world of gardening and that kind of thing. Revived is a term that describes a plant that has been blossoming. But it's gone inactive during winter. But then spring rolls around, things start to pop, things get green. That was Paul's relationship with the church at Philippi. They were not actively supporting him. uh, There had been a winter season where they were inactive in their financial support. But then springtime came, they were supporting him again with this offering that went to him. And just because they weren't helping him out during that winter season, it didn't mean that they could care less. Verse 10 says, You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Can't nail down exactly why they had no opportunity. Uh, They were a poor church. Might have been they'd been unable to give. They may not have known about his need, uh, Didn't have the internet back then where you can go back and forth like we do today. May have lost track of where he was. They didn't know how to get the money to him. That was a a possibility. It doesn't say they simply had no opportunity, but now they did. And they responded. Maybe when you were younger, or maybe right now you get a birthday card from grandpa and grandma every year. And there's 20 bucks and a note in it. And when you were younger, you probably looked at the 20 bucks and you took it and the card got pitched to the side. That handwritten note. But as you got older, you still appreciated money. But the handwritten note, you appreciated a little more. Their love for you, their care for you, their prayers for you, their concern for you. Money is nice, but you appreciate their concerned right through the years. Similar to the Apostle Paul, his love, his pastoral concern for them, his deep affection for them, and they loved him back. They had a deep concern for him. They had prayed for him. The gift was nice, but what motivated the gift was what jazzed Paul's heart. Paul is joying in his Lord, how He had worked how the Father had worked in the hearts of the Philippians. In God's sovereignty. God was at work in his sovereignty in their human actions as they met Paul's needs. But Paul was letting them know, come what may, my heart is happy. I have a contented spirit whether the cupboard is full or whether the cupboard is bare. Okay, now look at verses 11 and 12. It says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, we'll come back to that word. In whatever situation I am to be content, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Second point is being content in all circumstances, being content in all circumstances. The Philippians could have thought that Paul was walking around with a long face, moping around with a why me attitude. He could have thought that they had forgotten him. And maybe, just maybe, he wanted his life before them in jail, to be a living, breathing picture, a living, breathing case study of how to respond to difficulty. Maybe they needed Paul's perspective on money. One author notes, if they had not been tempted to worry, they wouldn't have received the pray about everything, worry about nothing text earlier, uh, text before what we're looking at this morning. Verse 11, focus in on the word learn. Paul said he wasn't in need. He was content. And he said he was content in every situation, but this was something he had learned. We know that Paul had learned at the feet of Gamaliel, a rabbi who taught in Judaism, Acts 22.3. He had one of the best educations ever that anyone could ask for. But that's not where he had learned contentment. He learned contentment as a disciple of Christ at the school of hard knocks. It was through the practical experiences that life throw at you, including hardship and dashed dreams and shortcomings and things not going as planned as I think we sang in one of the songs this morning. Pain is a wonderful teacher. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that pain is God's megaphone. Pain causes us to get vertical and invite God into our pain for comfort and support and to navigate well. Uh, One of my go-to passages for hurting people is 2 Corinthians 1 verses 8 through 11. I've, I've read it to encourage myself. And I'm going to read it slow for you this morning so you can meditate on it. Paul writes, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf. For the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. They were experiencing affliction. In Corinth, death was looking pretty good. They felt they had received the sentence of death, but it raised their gaze from their own selves and their own problems, their own puny resources, and brought the all powerful God on the scene. How powerful? Powerful enough to raise the dead, it says. Paul looked in the rearview mirror and knew that God had delivered them previously and that he would again but he encouraged and relied on the prayers of the Corinthians for God to accomplish his purposes with them. It was through circumstances like that that Paul had learned to be content in whatever circumstance. So, back to Philippians. His circumstances had been difficult. Away from other believers, small apartment, Roman soldier at his side, limited diet. Stuffed or starving, Paul had learned contentment i know how to be brought low verse 12 and i know how to abound in any and every circumstance i have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need to be brought low this is a reference back to chapter 2 verse 8 where it speaks of christ in his suffering and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross Paul knew what it was like to be humbled in life circumstances. In fact, he asked to share in Christ's suffering back in chapter 3, verse 10. This kind of suffering, this kind of humil- humiliation, was not looked upon kindly by the world that Paul lived in. But that's what Jesus faced on the cross, and that was the kind of suffering that Paul was enduring. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Paul regularly got beaten, and it seemed that death was very near. Beaten within an inch of his life, you might say. Acts 14, 19, the Jews stirred up the crowds. They stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city, left him for dead. That's probably about as low as you can go. But he also knew how to abound. He experienced that. He had a vision in 2 Corinthians 12 where it it says he was taken up into the third heaven. He abounded. He was blessed spiritually in that experience that God had given him. Paul had experienced the polar opposites and everywhere in between in his life. Unbelievers can't wrap their minds around how some Christians can remain steady and calm during difficulty. And stay humble when things are going well. As believers, this is one of those ways that we can be growing in our understanding of this. Believers going through difficulty need to know they are under the mighty hands of a sovereign God. When we witness, when we share our faith, we use our words, but we live during difficulty how we live during difficulty can start the conversation, can further the conversation. When believers suffer well or when believers don't pat themselves on the back when things are going well, that's a conversation starter. That speaks to a world that gets down in the dumps and depressed when they feel like their head is in a vice and to a world that is full of pomp and pride and look at me when things are going exceedingly well. Verse 12 says, In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here, here, here's a short overview of Paul's uh, what he faced 2 Corinthians 6 4 and 5. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Whoa. No doubt when Lydia came to faith in Acts 16, she was well-to-do. She dealt in purple cloth. No doubt when Paul and his gang was staying at her house, they weren't getting peanut butter sandwiches, and they weren't sleeping in the backyard in their sleeping bags. He would likely live very well when they were with her. Let me ask you a question for you to answer in your head. Do little things blow your contentment? Dishwasher needs to be repaired. Computer is frustrating you because it's taking longer to boot up. Your phone doesn't work like it once did when it was fresh out of the box. Someone cuts you off in traffic. I was at AMA a few weeks ago and I was working through this text and things were taking longer than they should have. Those are some of those circumstances in our lives that can cause us to be content, that grow us to press into Christ and be content coming to know that he is sovereign and in control of every single detail of our lives, good or bad. There may be more serious situations like employment and health scares and losing a loved one, difficulties in the workplace. Those kinds of uncertainties can teach us to press into Christ, learning contentment through difficulty, like Paul did. When my dad was a kid, he grew up on a farm, grew up in uh, southern Ontario. They weren't particularly rich. He didn't get to town very often. And when he did, my grandma would uh, take him and my aunt into town, and they would have to wait in the car. And we know that was things they did back then that we don't do today. But they would sit there in the car, and they weren't discontented because they didn't go into the store with my grandma. They didn't know what they were missing. All those things on the shelves that they never got to see. My dad was happy as a clam sitting in the car. He didn't know what he was missing. I like to tell the story of one of our daughters when she was younger. We had one of those old school big TVs. You remember the the square ones? Remember those, before they had the flat screens? She was at school one day, and they were having conversations, and flat screen TVs were new. And Emily C., she had a flat screen TV, and Emily S. had a flat screen TV. She had like five or six Emilies in her class of ten girls anyway. Uh, Do you think we bought a flat screen so she could get in the conversation? No, she learned to be out of the conversations. She survived. She isn't bad off because she didn't have a flat screen TV. Dennis Johnson writes an all telling paragraph in his commentary that I think will resonate with you because it resonates with me. Listen to what he says. Even when we live well above the poverty line, surrounded by far more than the bare necessities. It is easy to tell that we don't have, it is easy to feel, it's easy to feel that we don't have enough stuff or good enough stuff or new enough stuff or fast enough stuff. He writes, affluent people who never wonder where the next meal is coming from can be very discontented with what they have. John D. Rockefeller, at the peak of his wealth, he had a net worth of about 1% of the U.S. economy. He owned 90% of all the oil and gas industry at the time. Experts say his net worth today would have been about $400 billion. That's a lot of zeros. He was once asked, how much money is enough? You might know the answer. Just a little bit more. Sounds like the stuff didn't help. Sounds like he was a discontented man. There was a a different kind of contentment that was popular in Paul's day. The Stoics, they believed that contentment was the highest of virtues. They believed that man should be sufficient unto himself for all things enabled by the power of his will to resist the force of circumstances excuse me, to resist the force of circumstances. They believed that each person was kind of like a superhero who could rise above their circumstances through independent self-sufficiency and serenity. But that's not what Paul had learned. And that's not how Paul is calling us to live. Look at our final verse for today. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Being content through Christ's strength. That's our final point. Being content through Christ's strength. We're back to that verse, sometimes misquoted, right up there with John three sixteen, And as much as I would love, I would love to fly like Peter Pan, as cool as that would be, that is not an application of philippians 4:13 it does not guarantee that i will win every game that every sermon will be cracked out of the park that i will always shoot par that if i have this taped above my workbench or on my shoes that everything will go out as go along as i want it to I was reading a a book for school, I'm at Miller with Pastor Greg, and this book covered the book of Esther. God's not mentioned in the book of Esther, not mentioned once, but does that mean he's not there? If you were to read the book of Esther, his fingerprints are all over over it, even though we don't hear his name. We think of Paul in his little home, locked up, church at Philippi, hundreds of miles away. Occasional visitor, a guard, maybe a friend or two, pretty much alone. But like in the book of Esther, God is quietly doing his work in Paul's heart behind the scenes. God is Paul's invisible means of support. And that's true of every believer. What Paul means here is that whatever the circumstances happen to be, in whatever extremes, if he's whining and dining with kings and queens, or if he's unfairly locked up, if he's challenged by writing a group of people that have their fingers in their ears and don't want to listen to him. If he's writing a church from behind bars where there's a falling out between two ladies, and that was the truth of Philippians, Yodia and Syntyche, earlier in chapter four. In all those different kinds of circumstances, he can be content and can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. You can be content divinely strengthened. You and I can be divinely strengthened, whatever scenario it is. We have the same gospel as the Apostle Paul. We have the Bible just like he did. Well, ours is complete. I don't think Paul's complete New Testament was written when he was writing this. We have the same spirit. If you're a believer today, you have the same spiritual blessing as Apostle Paul. Ephesians 1 and 4 says every spiritual blessing in Christ. Okay, back to the verse 13. The word order in the original is interesting. It goes, All things I can do. And the emphasis is on the all things. If Paul was writing today, he'd use a highlighter, he would use caps, he would use bold, he'd want you to be reading Philippians 4 with all things just popping off the page at you, and he doesn't say, I may do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Can means ability. I can. I can. Not the words of a little engine that could, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. The word do means to be strong, to have power, power or strength to perform the task of being content. But the strength wasn't of Paul. He didn't look down deep inside himself, didn't pull himself up by his own spiritual bootstraps, because spiritually speaking, he didn't have any straps and he didn't have any boots. He didn't have a God helps those who help themselves kind of attitude. It wasn't the power of positive thinking. It was through him, through Christ who strengthens me. Some versions actually put Christ who strengthens me. We live in a world that sings the pop song that was famous when I was in high school. You just gotta have faith. But if you follow the song along, along, there's no object for that faith. We know the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. It's not just kind of mystical. For the believer, the object of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. He will give us all that we need to do what he calls us to do, being content in every circumstance. Like the way Paul put it in Colossians 1.29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul didn't say it was a breeze, didn't say it was a cakewalk. He was struggling with all Christ's energy. Christ gave him strength, energy to struggle well. Isaiah 40 verses 29 and 31 says this. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but... They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You may remember Paul's thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited... Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. A difficulty, a thorn in the flesh, was given to Paul to keep him from being conceited, to keep him from walking with swagger, to keep him from becoming proud and boastful. He prayed that God would remove that for him continually. And God said, my grace is enough. And that caused him to brag on his weaknesses. How cult- countercultural is that? And at the end of the section, it showed that he was content with whatever, weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, calamities. When he was weak, in Christ he was strong. I met with a a friend a while back, and from a human standpoint, things were really hard. I hadn't seen her in a while, and uh, to say the bottom was dropping out of her life was a bit of an understatement. And she didn't just have herself to be concerned about, but it was her family as well. And there could be some radical changes in their uh, family's future. That may be you this morning might be a financial thing might be a work thing might be a relationship thing and these things seem to be bleeding you dry but for those who are in Christ bible says his grace is enough his grace is sufficient for those who are in Christ Jesus we sometimes get needs and wants mixed up am i right It's good to remember that food, shelter, and clothing are all neat. And everything above and beyond is gravy. Everything above and beyond is want. Cars and computers and holidays and nights out. Those are some of the niceties of life. But not the necessities. And just so you know, you've never heard me before, so I'm about to wrap up in the next three, four minutes, just so you know. Maybe you're not a believer this morning, and you need to see some of the practicalities of the Christian life. Well, when believers go to bed and they're resting in Christ, they can sleep well because they can trust in his sovereign care. We serve a God who strengthens us where we don't have to be at the mercies of our circumstances. Where we can fly above our circumstances, just like Paul did. Sir, if you're an unbeliever this morning, the gospel is offered to you. The reality is this, we are born strangers from God because of our sin. And God is a long way off. And people try to do everything they can to get to God. But we don't get to God on our own. We get to God through the God-man Jesus Christ who came to live the life of perfection that we couldn't live and died the death that we were supposed to die, experienced the wrath toward the wrath of God that we were supposed to experience. But when we invite Christ to be our Lord and Savior, when we invite Him and turn from our sin and turn to Him, we become a child of God. We become one of His. And with that comes some of the benefits that I talked about this morning. And for those of you who are believers this morning, we are a testimony to God with our lives. And as a church body and I, Know how many of this is church home, and I don't know how many are visiting this morning. But as a church body or a church body you're visiting this morning back home, wherever you're from, that is a collective testimony to the community around you. As we thank God in every and any circumstance, as we deal with difficulties well by His grace, as we respond to an empty cupboard or a full cupboard with His strength. We are a wonderful example before a watching world. Your neighbor, your family member, your coworker who doesn't know the Lord. We can meet the difficulties of life well by his strength. And that's something that an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. When good and bad things come our way, we often fail to see God's sovereignty in them. If things go well, the temptation is to pat ourselves on the back, to applaud ourselves. If things go poorly and people or a person is involved, we rip on them or blame them or live with hardness and regret and remorse and anger toward them, but tend to only see things from a human perspective. Our associate pastor loves the Puritans, and here is a quote. I think Jeremy Burroughs was a Puritan. Listen to what he writes. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition we need to see the good and bad things come our, that come our way sifted through the hands of a sovereign God as we pursue him in abundance and in need and everywhere in between. May we grow in contentment. May we learn that we can be content through Christ who strengthens us. Let's pray together. Father, in a world that is discontented, we ask that by your grace, you would help us grow in the contentment that you would long for us and the contentment that Paul experienced. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.